So, what's the worst job you've ever had that's haunted you? The worst job? Uh-huh. A job that you still think about to this day. Not something that was shitty and you moved on, but like something's like, God, that fucking sucked. I can't believe I had to do that. Um, I mean, working at Pizza Hut was probably one of the worst jobs I've ever had. And then I think we've talked about that. Like, mm. fast food service industry is like the worst industry to work in. I agree. It's like, no matter how much you do, your coworkers are never like all that invested mm-hmm. in whatever you're doing. So sometimes they just don't show up. This gives you more work to do. Your company certainly doesn't care about you at all. And you're just spinning your wheels. Yeah. So I think that's probably the worst. I've had experience in both sides of uh, food like that, both mom and pop restaurants and corporate restaurants. And they're both shitty for usually the same reasons. Yeah. When I say fast, I just mean like food service. Yeah. uh, It's probably the better description as opposed to like just the service industry generally. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I've never worked retail, but Me I either. can't imagine it's worse. Everyone talks like those two are comparable, but I can't imagine retail's as bad as food. I can't imagine it. Like, maybe the service part of it is a little similar. Maybe. Being like... I feel like you'd stand around a whole lot more, though. Yeah, I, I feel like it's less... Like, retail is probably less fast-paced most of the time. Yeah. Um, And you're not working for tips. For me, it was when I was like, hosting, waiting, and bartending at Carabas in the borough because my boss there is the meanest person I have ever met. She is like, she was this little Chinese lady named Grace and she would just rip you apart if your shirt was like not completely starched and pressed. Carabas is a weird place to me because it's like... It's a notch above Olive Garden. Stupidly fancy. Yeah. But not that nice. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, it's pretentiously bad. It's it's like the Applebeesification of, like, a community. The way they pick up, like, niche little tacky, like, local history shit, and they post it up and try to make it look a little antique and shit, but it always comes across a little disingenuous because you know it came from, like, corporate HQ. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I can't imagine, like, working at JCPenney would be mm-hmm. as bad as working anywhere where it's hot or you're cooking or you're having to run around and wait on people. And I've had uh, serving jobs where they test you on the menu, but this is the only one I've had where they test you on the history of the franchise. Like, I don't give a fuck about John Caraba. And nobody's going to ask you. No, not a single commercial is going to ask me about Mama Mandola and John Caraba. Like, I'm not going to walk in and be like, hey, waiter, um, I know uh, you're trying to wait on all your other tables, but could you provide me a brief historical rundown of not only this location, but the entire company as a whole? I need some of this franchise lore right now. I'm trying to, I'm a franchisee potentially, but your knowledge of the history of this franchise is really what's going to set it apart for me. Well, it started with Wilhelm Applebee's. (laughs) If you don't get this right, I'm just going to start opening five guys everywhere. So, Know that this is important to me. Well, who are those five guys? I don't fucking know. I need you to tell me. And no, I will not get out of line until you do so. I need their names and backstories. And it's how one guy. It's other? one guy. It's one guy. That's is it. it. Is it really? 
I don't know. Oh, okay. That's a stupid fucking name for a restaurant started by one a guy. small order of fries is a brown bag of fries. It's a trash bag of fries. And a large order of fries is a brown bag of fries. There's no difference in size. I don't know what you're... Maybe that's what the name is for, is the portion is four or five guys, even though you're a single guy. I mean, it's pretty expensive, but it's way better than Red Robin's. That's just an opinion. Yeah. That's just an opinion, like a comparable, like, we're burger and fries place. Yeah. Well, welcome back to another episode of The Snob and the Scent Presents. I'm your host, Matt. I'm your host, Michael. And today we're going to be continuing Nicolas Cage Month with 1999's Bringing Out the Dead, directed by Martin Scorsese. Before we jump into that, Michael, what have you been watching, man? So, uh, Orange is the New Black. Okay, are you starting that for the first time? Yeah, I was late to the show. I, it's better than I thought it would be. I never got into it, but it's the same lady that did Weeds, and I liked most of Weeds. I don't think I finished that one. Well, we were watching, we had finished up that 90s show, went into that 70s show. Samantha agreed that that 70s show is better, and then said, hey, that girl's in Orange is the New Black, why don't we watch that? And so because Laura Prepon is in both that 70s hmm. show and Orange is the New Black. I forgot watching, she's in that. We're watching Orange is the New Black. Okay. Good show, so far. Well, tell me a little more about it. A uh, bunch of ladies in prison. Uh, you should know about it by now. Well, I know, but I'm asking you to, you know, talk on your uh, media podcast, your media critique podcast. I'm asking you to maybe uh, critique the media you're talking about. Yeah, it's... Uh, I haven't seen it, so I can't coax it out of you like it, I usually do. It's, pre- it's pretty good. Uh, it's It's about a woman who... It's uh, like insider trading or something she goes in for? No, she, no. like... She is dating Laura Prepon back like in ten years prior to when the show set, and she runs drugs for Laura Prepon presumably one time, and then Laura Prepon's character gets busted by the feds, and she rolls over on her ex girlfriend who had ran drugs for her one time. Hmm. Uh, she gets arrested, charged, goes to prison. She's in a woman's prison where everything is just wacky. Uh, like face-off wacky? Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, like the romanticized version of prison life. Mm-hmm. The quasi-scared straight style of prison life. There's not a lot of media about women's prisons compared to men's prisons. Yeah, I don't know. I've never been to a women's prison. I've been to prisons. But you've seen like movies about male prisons and right, you've seen right. this so uh, why do you think like uh how do they compare yeah I mean, like I, the typical I, like prison movie which is yeah. usually a male's facility as far as like how well does it relate to life i have no idea as far as how does it relate to like other prison movies um it's it's more comedic more, more about like ah we're zany lesbians as opposed to like 
hey, if you drop the soap, you're going to really regret what happens to you for the rest of your life. Or you're going to get a hole punched through your torso. Correct. Yeah, it's like, it's a lot of like women either acting hard or being hard, uh, a gratuitous amount of nude women, which I'm sure is in part for the male audience. I don't yeah. know if women in in women's well, prisons are always walking around naked. Well, in regular prison movies, you usually see a lot of male nudity. It makes sense. It's part of like the dehumanizing part of it, I'd say. Yeah, it just it just seems strange. Like I I don't know. Like, do they try to make it sexy? I think so. In some part. Yeah. Well, you don't really get that in the male prison movies. Yeah, they're not making like that guy's dong super sexy. Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe it's just the male perspective of the show. I'm more likely to go, all these ladies are more attractive than all these dudes and their dongs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. It's it's softer. All the it's, king's men and all their dongs. It's definitely, like, brighter than yeah. uh, a male prison movie. Mm-hmm. It's probably got, like, the kind of gratuitous nudity that you would expect from Spartacus. Okay. If you ever watched that. Yeah. I watched the first couple seasons of that. I don't but think I again, finished it. Yeah. a lot of dongs in Spartacus. Yeah. That one dong, what was that guy's name? Fucking, oh, uh, he's the guy that tries to kill Spartacus, but he has like an absurdly huge dick. He gets crucified. Oh, I don't remember which one that was. It's not Crixus, because Crixus ends up becoming boys with him. Gannicus? No. That was like the other main protagonist guy at one point. Yeah, well, uh, this guy was only in it for like an episode or two. He like came from the outside and somebody paid him to kill Spartacus from what I remember. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I watched that. I remember watching Spartacus when I was in high school being like, man, I hope my parents don't walk in and watch me, see (laughs) see me watching all this dong. (laughs) Because there was so many penises. Looking at all this dong to the early morn. (laughs) What, What are you doing? It's like, I promise... I'm not watching it for the dongs. <laughs> watching it for the blood sport. What did that come on? Stars? Uh, Stars or Showtime? I think it was Stars. I think that was like the one show they had. But it was good. Like, Spartacus was really solid. Yeah. Oh, and it had a Juicy Flawless in it. That's true. Yeah. Um, She was like 45, still looking she, good as hell. She's banging through the ages, man. Yeah. Solid. Uh, I will say... My biggest complaint about Orange is the New Black is that Netflix won't remember that we're watching it, so I have to search for it every time, and I don't know what that's about. You don't have, like, a tab for, like, pick up where you left off? Oh, you do. It just doesn't include Orange is the New Black. Huh. Weird. You figured it would push it extra hard since that's a Netflix original. Yeah, but it doesn't. Hmm. It doesn't show up. Frustrating. What What, what about you? What have you, been, what have you been watching? Very frustrating. Well, related to today's movie, I watched uh, First Reformed, starring Ethan Hawke and <laughs> Cedric the Entertainer. Okay. Which, uh, it's an A24 picture, and it's, in it, Ethan Hawke plays a priest who's counseling a couple who uh, are about to have a baby, and they're both like Greenpeace-type people, eco-terrorists. Or the wife isn't so much, but the husband's more invested in it, and they're kind of at this impasse where she wants to have the baby, and he's like, what's the point of bringing another child in this world if the planet's going to be unlivable in another 15, 20 years? And so Ethan Hawke is canceling them about that, and the guy ends up killing himself. Which and guy? The husband? The husband. And this launches Ethan Hawke down like a black pill route to climate change, and he becomes okay. an eco-terrorist. And... The similarity is just the well, descent of man. The similarity is that it was written and directed by Paul Schrader, who wrote 
the screenplay for Bringing Out the Dead, which we're covering today. Gotcha. Okay. That's the connecting theme there. Gotcha. But it was really good. I liked it a lot. It's a that mentioned it was an A twenty four. You did. Did I mention that I watch A twenty four? You you did. And you do quite often, I think. Yeah. But I watched just about anything with Ethan Hawking and he was great in it. Yeah, I mean he's a solid actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't know if I've seen him in too much lately. Uh I think the last thing besides this that I watched him in was the Black Phone, that Joe Hill adaptation. Which yeah. that movie was pretty fun. It, it's the for only time I've seen him play a villain. Oh. Swag. Yeah. I'm trying to think what else I could say about it. Uh Paul Schrader is a longtime collaborator of Martin Scorsese. This is uh, Bringing Out the Dead is one of many that he's done. He wrote the screenplay for Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, a lot of great Scorsese's. So let's, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your Ethan Hawke movie? What, what's something in, like cool about it? Well, it's had a pretty funny meme to it because uh, there's a gif going on. I don't know if you've seen the gif of Ethan Hawke putting on a suicide vest. No, I don't think so. No, it'll be like Taco Bell removed the Mexican pizza again and then someone will post the gift of him putting on the bomb vest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, that's fine yeah it's called first reform because the church that he watches over isn't really a church it's more of a tourist attraction because it was like one of the first like plymouth rock churches so his whole thing is bullshit and he's also like dying of cancer throughout it so that's part of why he's also black pilled okay yeah seems like a he's on a journey if you would he is on a journey a short one, but uh, it's a journey. Doesn't matter how long the journey is. You just got to be on it. It's about the path taken, brother. It is. Yeah. It's I, not about the distance covered. Yeah. I want to say I watched that on HBO. Okay. First Reformed. Check it out. Check it out. Yeah. Do it. So that moves Do us it. into our uh, second segment, Enemy of the Pod. I can't stop crying. Fuck you. You suck. Fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, asshole. Do you have an enemy for us this week? Yeah, um, the enemy of the pod for me, I, I think, full circle, we talked about this previously. I really got worked up about libertarians. <laughs> okay. I thought I was going to come back to Diesel Boys. Which no, not Diesel they Boys. They be the same. Um, they do overlap. Mm-hmm. I don't want to conflate the two, though. Uh, libertarians generally just, I get it. You like weed <laughs> and you don't like taxes. None of us like taxes. We pay them because they help. They do things. If we could pick what they'd be for, we probably would. We don't approve of everything they go to, but that doesn't mean we just don't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. When you boil an entire ideology down to, I like to smoke weed and I don't like taxes, you're leaving a lot there, which allows you to not really be all that genuine. Well, you can't govern off of just the premise of leave me alone. That's not governance. Well, you can govern off leave me alone, but leave me alone then has some to be people, very broad. Well, some people don't need to be left alone. I, that's none of my business. <laughs> it's the state's business. Leave them alone. You leave them alone until they're not leaving other people alone. Mm. That's the rule. Well, that's the thing with libertarians is they like to bother everyone else. Exactly. <laughs> that's why there's... Pro- I don't think there's really a, a true libertarian. No. Like, if you're just one of those people who's like, I'm a libertarian, I have a Gadsden flag... 
you're an authoritarian who likes to smoke weed and doesn't like taxes. No, you're a Republican who just realizes that it's kind of stuffy to call yourself one. You don't want to be your dad. Didn't we just say the same thing? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, it doesn't mean anything. Like, when I see a Gadsden flag, I immediately think, this person will tread on me at the first moment they get. Yeah. They it's don't, don't tread about, on me. I could give a fuck what happens to you. Like, their liberty is, I want liberty for me, but I don't want liberty universally. Mm-hmm. And that's what aggravates me. It's this inauthentic form of, hey, don't don't bother me. I'll bother you all I want. And yeah. you but don't tell me not to because I'm a libertarian. You don't get to tell me not to do something. Mm-hmm. Just get the fuck out get out of the left lane. Or you don't like, need to be in the left lane of the road all the time. Or it's like the people that claim their free speech is being attacked when someone tells them to shut the fuck up. It's like, no, that person just used their free speech to tell you that what you're saying is stupid. Well, and none of that's free speech. Yeah. Half the time people talk about free speech, they're just like, this person said, told me they didn't want to hear me talk about it. It's like, yeah, they can do that. They're not infringing anything about you. They yeah. just don't like being around you or what you're saying. Now, if the government came in, sure, they might be infringing. But just because someone doesn't want you to yell in a Whole Foods about how there are children hidden under the melons that are going to be trafficked across the country <laughs> to be sold at big lots, like, that's not free speech. You're just not allowed in Whole Foods anymore. Man, you buy your traffic children at big lots? Broke. Yeah, well, that's the best place to do it. Nobody would look for children in big lots. And if they found them, they'd go, someone's parents left them here. Man. Your harem smells like broke, dog. <laughs> hey, man. All I know, Your child harem is subpar. If I see somebody ordering a $900 like toothbrush off Wayfair, I know they're buying a kid. <laughs> if I see somebody buying something from Big Lots, I don't know what's in that box, and I'm not looking. I have bought a lot of shitty Big Lots furniture over the years, though. Yeah, I mean... If it's you, good to last you about two years. Let's say you buy a couch from Big Lots. No one's going to bat an eye. Even if you never get a couch and instead you get a child. Mm. But when you start buying stuff off Wayfair, people are going to know. I don't know if Wayfair actually trafficked kids. I'm pretty sure that whole thing was bullshit, actually. I don't know if that's true, but it's an easy target. Because mm -hmm. everything on Wayfair is like either way too expensive or way too cheap. Which tells me they're selling kids. And this is why libertarians are full of shit. <laughs> libertarians are the epitome of... I don't really know what I believe. I just know what I don't like. I'll tell you what a libertarian is. It's a sovereign citizen without the courage. Uh, it's a sovereign citizen that doesn't believe in themselves enough. Uh, uh, hmm. uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes? No. No? Sovereign citizens are a different breed. They're fine with governance. Just they not just, for them. They just want to be governed by something that they made up. Yeah, that doesn't exist. Uh, or that they've like signed on to that someone else made up. Uh, the like, Articles of Confederation. It has to be like an unrecognized government. It yeah. can't be an actual, legitimate, bona fide government. Um, I'm uh, telling you, man, gold delariums, they're backed by gold. <laughs> Who's gold? No one knows. I'm actually a dignitary from Molly. And no, you can't have my supervisor's number to check that. I think libertarians are just phonies. Mm -hmm. They're children. They they are. They're people who just need to grow up and just... Pay your fucking taxes. Admit what you are. A stoner who doesn't like taxes. And that's fine if that's all you are. Mm. Just don't pretend like you're something more than that. 
Otherwise, you're Bill Maher. Listen, buddy, I work for my money. That's the number one libertarian line is I work for my money. We all work for our money. <laughs> yeah, that's what money is. I heard that a lot in restaurants. Whenever somebody was pissed, they would always jump straight to that. I don't know about you, but I work for my money. It's like, dude, I'm at fucking work. (laughs) I'm in a uniform that matches the building you're in. I can't just tip you because that's giving you money for not doing anything for me. Now, why wouldn't you give me a whole bowl of lemons and 17 sugar packets to make lemonade and then charge me for just a water? And you know what? I'm, I'm sorry. If anybody listens to this and they don't like my take on libertarians, write into the show. Explain how you're somehow different. You're not going to tell them where to send that, are you? No. Good. Okay, yeah. Yeah, right away then. If you want to mail it to a place, and maybe we'll get it. Maybe we won't. I don't care. It's my opinion, and I'm going to hold it. I need you to write it on college-rolled paper, fold it four times, and then put it in your ass. Find the nearest dirt crossroad, bury it there at midnight. Call the devil. (laughs) Make a deal with him. Sell your soul to find out where to send this letter to. (laughs) And maybe I'll check it because I kind of only check my mail like once every six months or so. Which He's he's not kidding. Almost prevented you from becoming an attorney. (laughs) Oh wait, no, that was a faxing situation. Never mind. No, it was both. It was both. The faxing thing became a big deal because the letter was in your mailbox for at least a month or two. Well. A letter you knew to look out for. I don't deal in archaic communications. If I can't do it on my phone, then I don't need to do it. My, <laughs> this, no matter whose future is at risk. This simple trick. Mailmen hate it. <laughs> Never check your mail. <laughs> They'll just keep putting things in it until there's no more room. Postal workers hate him. Why? Because his mailbox is always full. It's probably full right now, honestly. It's full right now, I guarantee it. <laughs> I drove by and checked your mail. <laughs> no, I tried to open it, but it was just like, everything fell out, and I shoved it back yeah. in and closed it. My mailbox also leaks, so everything I get out of it is soggy and covered in ants. <laughs> I don't know why there's ants in there. Maybe somebody put a sweet treat in there. Well, you'll see. When you order from Blue Apron... If you don't check your mail, it will get full of ants. <laughs> don't shop at Blue Apron if you don't check your mailbox. Okay. I didn't <laughs> jump into the movie today. You got more on libertarians. Uh, I don't have any more on libertarians, unfortunately. All right.
today's movie is Bringing Out the Dead from 1999, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader, as I said earlier, based on the novel by Joe Connolly. The movie stars Nicolas Cage, Patricia Arquette, John Goodman, Ving Rhames, Tom Sizemore, and Mark Anthony. Uh, the budget for this film was $32 million. At the box office, it only claims 16.8, though, so about half. Um, you failed to mention two uh, actors that are in it. Uh, Michael K. Williams. Oh, that. And oh. Uh, there was another one I was thinking I didn't write down. David Zayas, who plays Angel Batista in Dexter. Yes. He's cop in Elevator Number 2. I do remember seeing that. And then Carla from Scrubs is the nurse... Uh, in the ICU. Okay. So. Michael K. Williams is the guy that gets shot in the chest. Uh, it is a, it's a pretty star-studded cast. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, I think, hadn't made their break yet. There, there's several, like, small actors who hadn't made their break. Yeah, Michael K. Williams would definitely be a case of that. There's also some big names in it for 1999, because Scorsese had been a phenomenal director throughout the 70s and 80s, so. But this is a lesser-known film of his. Well, and John Goodman is not in the movie as much as you'd think. No. But neither is Ving Rhames, really. No. But uh, you want to break us down the synopsis real quick? Yeah, so uh, Bringing Out the Dead is classic film about a paramedic. Uh, drives around in an ambulance. He's burned out. Burned out as can be. He's scorched. He's seeing the ghost of everybody he's lost. Uh, I think he's like, it's been months since I was able to bring somebody in alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's just killing people left and right. Not intentionally, of course. He just... That's you know, the nature of the job. Uh, it probably just comes in waves, I would imagine. But he's taking it personally. It's it's burning him out. He's been a paramedic for like five years. Mm-hmm. The story really focuses around his weird love interest with Patricia Arquette. Because her dad has a cardiac event. They go, he's dead for some period of time. But they manage to bring him back. Uh, he's essentially brain dead at that point. They bring him to the hospital. and It's then almost like they're bringing out the dead. They are. Yeah. Well, and Nicolas Cage has got this idea of like, sometimes I imagine when they're like dying that their body, their their spirits like outside or behind me looking through the window going like, when's he going to be done so I can move on? And so, which is kind of contrasted with the line that comes up a little bit later with Patricia Arquette where she says, Sometimes people's body has to catch up where their mind and spirit are, and which is probably analogous with Nicolas Cage's current state of where he's at. But regardless, he it's this weird journey of he's constantly kind of talking to Patricia Arquette, bringing her to and from the hospital in the back of an ambulance. Also, over the course of four days, really, because we start on a Thursday. Uh-huh. And I think the movie ultimately ends on Saturday night. Yeah. And every day he's begging to be fired. And on Friday night, he quits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tries to. Well, he quits. Yeah. But then he just comes back the next day. Um, there's this loose thing going on where there's a, a drug called Red Death going around. Yeah. And it's causing people to overdose. And Narcan, it's like... It, it, I assume it's kind of like a, a fentanyl type situation. Yeah, I believe it's heroin that's got it's, something it's, similar to fentanyl. It's heroin. The doctor says it's got some kind of amino acid added to it. Yeah. And it takes like a hundred times more Narcan. I assume it's probably uh, essentially the same as the fentanyl crisis. Mm. But I wonder how long we've had Narcan. How long has that been around? Uh, at least since the 90s. Yeah, at least since 99. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so 
there's this under theme, there's this plot underlying everything of there's this drug going around killing everybody. And so all these cardiac events are related to this drug use. And instead of realizing that, man, we're just, this drug's killing people. Nicholas Cage is taking those deaths personally. He's haunted by this girl, Rose, Rosie, Rose, Rose, who he failed to save at some point because he couldn't get the tube in her throat or in her lungs. He kept getting in her mm-hmm. stomach when they do, do whatever. Yeah. Anyway, he, he ends up causing her to, he ends up being unable to save her. And that ghost haunts him more than anybody else. He sees her like in every stripper they pass. Uh, but it's ultimately the story of Nicholas Cage's character burning out. He Well, he's mm-hmm. burnt out and he's just kind of floating through these last few days getting drunk every single night to fall asleep. Uh, and you have this crew of people circle around him. So you start with John Goodman, who's a real solid, authentic guy who's like concerned with what he's going to eat for the night. Yeah, you get like a scale of professionalism amongst the EMTs. Right, and John Goodman's goal is like, one day I'm going to be a captain. That's Thursday night. On Friday night, you get Ving Rhames, who is this hyper-religious character who pre- also super lecherous. Yes. Um, Queen Latifah. Yes. Yeah, she's the a, dispatcher. She's the female dispatcher and the male dispatcher is Scorsese himself. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's neat. Uh, anyway. So Ving Rhames and Queen Latifah have this like, will they, won't they where maybe they, <laughs> they <date>. won't, <laughs> maybe they went on a date and she hit him in the head with a bottle. Yeah. Uh, or something like, but he's just really sexually inappropriate with her over the air. I think it's mostly just him harassing her sexually yeah. at work. I think that's what it is. So anyway, they respond to like a call and Ving Rhames, uh, it's just an overdose. So Nicholas Cage is like Narcanning him. And meanwhile, Ving Rhames is using this to try to convert everybody to Christianity. Well, he's tricking them. By staging a miracle. Yeah. Ving Rhames' character is wildly inauthentic. Yeah. Holier than thou and inauthentic. It is a pretty good bit, though, if you're a religious EMT trying to trick a bunch of goth shitheads into converting with Narcan as like a magical bringing them back. It's funny, yeah, and it, it, it like it's a good scene, but like Ving Rhames' character is just as messed up as everybody else, mm-hmm. but he's masking it with, uh, with his religion. He kind of reminds me of Tom Savini's character in Dust Till Dawn, Sex Machine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he does not have a crotch pistol, though. That's you see. Well, he doesn't show us. Yeah. And if he had one, he would show us. But he's, like, driving all crazy and mad and flips an ambulance, mm-hmm. which is when Nicolas Cage quits. Then he hooks up with his old partner, Sizemore. Yeah. Who is just insane. They're, like, I think they're the most similar yeah. of the two as far as how they handle their burnout. Mm-hmm. And so you just see Nicolas Cage's character essentially traveling through all these other people. Uh, and you relate, you can compare him to his counterpart. Yeah. And you just see every, no one's handling this stuff really all that well, except for John Goodman, who's like focused on his future. Yeah. In true Scorsese fashion, this film is much more about story over plot. And uh, what I mean by that is it's less about the sequence of events and more about the emotional journey of this character piece. Right. And so what we see is Nicolas Cage doesn't really make any personal progress mm-hmm. ultimately. He does kind of have like a love interest. He experiments with Patricia drugs Arcanist. to oh, yeah. kind of fall asleep a bit, then has a bad trip, 
mm-hmm. then has to save his drug dealer who jumped off of a balcony and got spiked on a balcony railing. Yeah. It's a really good scene, though. Um, I have a quote from uh, the Nicolas Cage character, uh, Frank Pierce, that I think kind of sums up his burnout really well. The street is so much more unpredictable than the ER, and to prepare for the unexpected, I was taught to act without thinking, like an army private who could take a part and reassemble their gun blindfolded. I realized that my training was useful in less than 10% of the calls, and saving someone's life was even rarer than that. As the years went by, I went to grew. I grew to understand that my role was less about saving lives and more about bearing witness. I was a grief mop, and much of my job was to remove, if even for a short time, the grief starter or the grief product. It was enough that I simply showed up. And I, that really, I think that reflects his his current state of despair of yeah. watching everybody die once he gets there. But we also see that he. In his efforts to save someone, he saves Patricia Arquette's father. Yeah, uh, physically, which he's conflicted with. Throughout physically the film. saves her, saves him. But we see over the course of the next few days, they're having to resuscitate him over and over and over because he just keeps dying. And when he he'll come to, he's in agonizing pain. Tries to rip his tubes out, mm-hmm. so they have to Drug give him with Valium. Valium put him back out and then he'll die and they have to bring him back. And it's this endless cycle of him dying, being brought back, being in pain, being knocked out, dying. And so Nicholas Cage starts to, it has to, in essence is he's imagining what this lifeless person is saying to him. Mm -hmm. But in terms of storytelling, he's essentially seeing the spirit trying to communicate with him, waiting for the body to die. Yeah. at one point, they mentioned that they had defibrillated him 14 times in one day. Right. And this movie does a good job of showing the like physical trauma of being defibrillated. Right. And so, eventually, it's on the Saturday, this guy gets moved up to the ICU. He's finally out of just like the waiting area of the hospital, the triage area, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so, Nicolas Cage walks in. Uh, having seen the the stress that her father's precarious state has put on Patricia, he goes through and like takes all the life uh, sign mechanics off of the body, puts it on himself, like yeah. the chest patches and the pulse sensors and the fingers, the breathing tube. He takes the breathing tube off, puts it in his mouth, and starts breathing breathing in it, so that the body of this guy can completely die before anyone's alerted that this is happening. Mm-hmm. And so he waits a few minutes. The guy f- dies. He hooks everything up. Then he's flatlining. There's not enough time to bring him back. And so in some way, I guess he's, he's trying to find peace in the fact that he's maybe bring kind of the moral is maybe bringing people back all the time is not the answer. Yeah. Sometimes people just die. The only person we really see him save is the drug dealer who's impaled. Yeah. But he also gives birth to a baby. Well, he doesn't give birth. Well, he, he delivers. He delivers. Yeah. Whatever. He delivers a He's goddamn Nicolas Cage movies just get weirder and weirder. <laughs> he delivers essentially twins. One of them's stillborn. One of them's alive. To and, a virgin, allegedly. Yeah, that made a bunch of, bunch of sense. That um, could have been like an immaculate conception thing, because who knows? Because one of the themes that Scorsese hits on in a lot of his films is Catholic guilt, and you see a lot of it in this one. Well... It, it clearly the the father of the children. I say father in quotes because he says they're virgins. Mm-hmm. I think he believes this is immaculate conception. Yeah. He mentions that they came from the island two years ago. So I'm guessing Costa Rica or Puerto Rico. I have no idea. Yeah, 
The movie's set but in Hell's Kitchen, your they, favorite part of New York. They come from uh, an island, mm-hmm. and he thinks they're virgins. They're living in an abandoned building in like a rundown part of town. Mm-hmm. The likelihood that they're both virgins is really low considering she's giving birth to twins. Yeah. I think the first thing Bing Rame says when he answers is, like, would you look at that, a fat crackhead. <laughs> yeah, that is what he I says. I ain't never seen that before. Uh, so when Nicolas Cage delivers these two twins, one of them stillborn, one of them alive, he essentially attributes the live one to Ving Rames and the dead one to himself and goes and like gets in an argument with Ving Rames about why he's so happy. He's like, we saved a baby boy. He's like, I I failed that boy or mm-hmm. whatever. Like he killed one. Yeah. And so it's really just the whole movie is Nicolas Cage's struggle with the reality of being a paramedic in a big city during a drug ep- epidemic. Yeah. Scorsese has a big thing with New York, obviously. He's a lifelong New Yorker, but I don't know that he's done a film besides Wolf of Wall Street that is a post-Giuliani New York, the supposed like cleaned-up New York. And I think this just is a good job of showing the pre-Giuliani New York. Not to say that anything he did as mayor was good, but the crackdown did have physical effects on the city. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a big New York fan. I don't like the Big Apple. The Big Apple's spoiled to its core. <laughs> well, we're not doing Taxi Driver this week, but <laughs> there's going to be a great rain one day. A good one. A real rain that'll wash the trash off the streets. I was uh, trying to channel my inner Rorschach more than anybody. Rorschach is probably based off Travis Bickle, if I had to guess, to an extent. That's the Taxi Driver. But anyway, that's a different Scorsese Wouldn't movie. would Rorschach predate... No. Taxi Driver? No. The graphic novel's not before Taxi Driver came Mm-mm. out? Taxi Driver's 76. When did the Watchmen graphic novel come out? 85? You would know better than me. I mean, I've watched it and I've read it. I don't know when it came out. I think like 85. Or it oh. might have been 1984, because I think, don't they like make plays on that? I don't know. It's, that's an aside. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it's a good movie. It's entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um. You've got some... It's a movie where you've got a very serious Nick Cage with brief moments of his mania coming through. Yeah. Which I think is very well tempered through most of the movie. But when it comes out, it's really showing him cracking down. Of all the like lunatic Nick Cage's roles, this one does the best in justifying his behavior. Yeah. This where you directly see, oh, he's just having a mental breakdown and acting this way. Mm hmm. Uh, another Scorsese trope is the excessive needle drops. I think the soundtrack to this thing is like 20 songs long. Surprisingly, not that much Rolling Stones, though. He's usually addicted to Rolling Stones. I don't remember. The soundtrack doesn't stand out to me other than it complements what's going on well enough that it mm. it doesn't overpower a scene. There's an R.E.M. song that plays, and then there's they play Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory by Johnny Thunders a couple times from the New York Dolls. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? I love this movie. I actually saw this, not when it came out. I didn't see it in theaters because I was like eight years old. But I saw it like fairly close as soon as it hit home video. I remember me and my dad renting it from Northside Video from Big Dave and the Cats. And uh, Still there, by the way. Still there. With the cats. And of course, when I watched it as a Probably kid. Not the same cats. Yeah. A lot of it was lost on me as a kid. You know, I didn't understand overdoses and psychosis the way, you know, I got a little more nuanced view on it now. I remember my dad's best friend also watched it, and he was an EMT, and he couldn't make it through it. He had to shut it off because it was fucking with him so bad. I mean, I'm sure being an EMT is just a devastating job. Yeah. 
And I wonder how true that like 10% stat is, if that is, you know, EMTs don't have that great of a rate when it comes to like saving people. Typically, by the time they get there, it's too late. Or if that's just working in a city of 8 million people in the worst part. Yeah, I would say part of that has to do with working in the one of the poorest parts of a city mm. where during a drug epidemic. Yeah. And there's rampant crime. So there's stabbings and shootings. Yeah. And coming from a rural area, we're used to the ER and the hospital being the same building, but that's not the case here. Yeah, I mean, they've all got different precincts. Yeah. So, you know... It, Fighting it, over who can't take any more patients. And I would imagine... And we don't have nights... Well, I, I doubt we have many nights where you've got... we got men of nights. 10, 15 ambulance in one little area driving around. Yeah. Bringing people in three, four five people an hour all mm-hmm. in critical conditions. Yeah. It's probably impressive for us to have a, a night where five, 10 people come in in critical condition. Yeah. But I, mean, I don't know that for sure. I kind of just making that up, but <laughs> um, I imagine it's very different to be EMT in a rural place than it is in an urban place. Yeah. Longer drives, but you can get there quicker still because there's no cars in your way. Well, and you probably have less populous generally yeah. means less people having serious health events well you would think that till you see our our town's crime stats we're always near the top yeah but i mean you're not like people getting shot and stabbed every day mm. the other thing you know as far as percentages of success or uh, i guess life versus death you know people are calling 911 usually either because someone's dying or someone's overreacting Mm-hmm. Yeah, we get to see the disdain that the EMTs have whenever they get like bunk calls for like regulars that are usually just homeless people having a hard time that don't necessarily need immediate emergency attention, but it's still part of their job. Well, and like there's this guy, Mr. O, yeah. who every single night drinks to the point where he's essentially passing out or vomiting. And all the other homeless people call, and they're like, he needs help, he needs help. And they're like, we don't care about Mr. O. He smells really bad. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants him around, because he's just going to do it the next night. And there's like an intake or receptionist person at the hospital who's always sitting down with people who are overdosing. Yeah. And going like, well, you're just going to do drugs again tonight or tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. Why should we save you this time if we're just going to have to save you again tomorrow? Yeah. But she's still... T- provides them care and then when mr o comes in for his we his nightly visit mm-hmm. she's like bring him on in and then um well she's a lot nicer to him i think she's she is shitty to the people that she knows can help it to an extent but like people like mr o and noel who are mentally unwell she's a lot softer with i mean that's it's really parsing a fine line between who's authentically uh drug addicted well who's mentally uh, cognizant of their what's going on with them that goes to the core of addiction though um if somebody is struggling with addiction they're struggling with it just as much as the guy who's just drank himself into a stupor uh i mean he's still the same problem he's farther down the line yeah well but i guess she doesn't see the point in lecturing somebody in cognitive decline then well i think the whole point of that is she's it's performative for yeah. her. Like she's lecturing people and giving them a hard time, but she knows like, they're just going to keep doing this. They're going to come back. She's going to keep giving them care. It's all kind of a performance of yeah. being motherly to the people she can. Mm-hmm. Oh, is so brain dead that there's no point. Yeah. He's uh, pickled. Yeah. I mean, he's just 
somehow keeps getting booze and just drinks until he has to be taken to the hospital mm-hmm. every night. Um, and his might be a case where if he didn't drink, he would be in the hospital dying. Oh, I'm sure. He's yeah. Probably been an addict for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, there's a weird scene where it's Nick Cage sits down with Patricia Arquette to talk about her father dying. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you noticed it, but there's just this weird camera cut where they sit down. The dissolves. Nicholas, it's like four dissolves in a row. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. The, the dialogue breaks uh-huh. hard, like almost mid-sentence. Like Nicholas, Nick Cage ends his sentence, and then without any response, it's just hard cut, hard cut, hard cut. And then the dialogue resumes like yeah. normal. And you're like, why did we do that? Yeah, it's just well, it's like four soft fades on top of each other, which gives it a weird ethereal look, which in different parts of the movie could have made like for a cool effect, but I don't really know what it was doing there. It's just different shots of Patricia Arquette. Yeah. No idea. I, I was kind of bringing it up hoping like you would have some explanation for that weird I don't, cinema. but I did notice it. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, well, it's like dialogue cuts, like where they would be going back and forth in a conversation, but, but there, was there no isn't dialogue. one. Yeah, I know. Yeah, like it's just, there's no dialogue. It's like angular, like soft fades. And you're looking at it going, uh, what? Yeah, I don't. They didn't, add, to me, they didn't add anything. It was distracting. And it seems like they were supposed to be something there. I guess you could just take it as they didn't have anything to say to each other at that point. Yeah. It, but it seemed like a it seemed like the dialogue was broken just for that. Mm-hmm. Like not a lull, not like if we just stopped talking. Yeah. And then picked up. Mm-hmm. It was just like if somebody shut off the mics for a second. <laughs> I wish there was shoved, a video aspect to this podcast so we could just do that. Right? And then someone shoved a camera at our face in different angles. Yeah. They said, shut up for a second, shoved a camera aggressively in our face and said, all right, start back. Mm-hmm. Like it just it real weird. It was like it didn't fit. Yeah. And I almost kind of had this effect that, like, I've noticed whenever I've taken hallucinogens. Like, the first time you start to notice your perception distorting, like, something will suddenly appear, like, slow. <laughs> it's like, what? Why aren't you talking normal speed now? I have no idea. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Uh, but it's a weird scene. Mm-hmm. And it's jarring. Yeah. And Nicolas Cage does have a lot of, like, distortions in his perception throughout the film. Yes. Uh, more so than just like seeing the dead, it's seeing this Rose girl's face on literally every person in New York City. Well, and each night it gets progressively worse. Yes. And on the last night, he go they go past a group of people. There's like, I don't know, five to 12 women standing there, and he starts seeing her face on each one of the women, mm-hmm. and then you he looks back and he sees her face on every single one of the women at the same time. Yeah. It's super weird. And then he's talking to Patricia Arquette at one point, and he just sees Rose's face saying what Patricia Arquette's saying. Yeah. And then he calls her Rose, which then Patricia Arquette doesn't miss a beat and just keeps talking to him. Yeah. It's weird. Mm-hmm. But it's it's like a... Yeah. I think it's, in some regard, it's meant to be weird because this is a journey of basically a mental health breakdown of someone with a high-stress job. Yeah. It's, it's good, though. Like, mm-hmm. it's... It's a two-hour movie, and it, in a way, feels like a two-hour movie. Yeah. Uh, another visual I really enjoyed was uh, when he takes the... I'm guessing it was heroin in a capsule that the drug dealer gives him uh, when he passes out. It was some kind of... Percocet or opioid. Yeah, just some kind of... Yeah. 
Run a mill pill. But he has like a vision of him walking through Hell's Kitchen. There's these ethereal arms of the people he's lost reaching up out of the pavement, and he's one by one pulling them out. And that seems to bring him a sense of peace until the drug wears off and he has his ultimate freak out inside the drug dealer's apartment. And then he grabs Patricia Arquette, who's passed out in a bed. Yeah. While screaming like a madman, not words. Yes. Just, ah! Ah! <laughs> Real Nick Cage. Yeah. Then, like, runs her down the stairs, and then they walk around, and she smokes. And they go back to her place, and he just passes out on her couch. Mm-hmm. It's a real weird scene. Yeah. She's been, she's, like, sober for two years or something, I think, at the time. Yes. And relapses because of her dad's, like, she's overwhelmed with her, the situation with her dad. And I guess goes and gets high just for the purpose of passing out. Mm-hmm. And uh, we haven't talked too much about the Noel character. Yeah. Uh, he uh, gets shot in the head at some point. Yeah. And causes him to essentially. He's schizophrenic. Yeah. Because Patricia Arquette, one scene she says. He's from my, the neighborhood. My dad let him live with us for basically a year. Yeah. Not really knowing who he was. And another scene she says that. It was her brother's best friend until he got shot in the head by some it was the drug dealer. Dr- it was the same drug dealer, him and Tiger, the big guy. They're the ones that shot Noel. Tiger shot Noel in the head? He says She says one of them did. Oh. Yeah. Which uh, is weird because she still goes back to his drug den. He seems like a really nice drug dealer. He not does. Ti- not Tiger, the other one. Yeah. But yeah, Noel is just like always thirsty. Mm-hmm. He always wants a cup of water. And so you're first introduced to him in the hospital. Strapped He's to strapped a down to a gurney, just screaming, give me a cup of water. Somebody, you look like a nice guy. Give me some water. <laughs> and the guy, like, uh, there's another guy in a gurney at his feet facing the other direction, just like, well, you shut the fuck Oh, and then eventually he gets tired of him screaming for water. And that guy gets out of his gurney and unstraps Noel, who just runs out. Yeah. And the doctor had said, look, we might he might die if we give him more water. We don't know what's going on with this guy. They yeah. They talked about him having a drug overdose and like salts in his kidneys or something. So the only what I was confused by that, too. The only thing I could think is that they gave him something that like flushed the electrolytes from his kidneys. So he doesn't have like sodium and potassium and stuff. So if he keeps drinking water. Water, that could somehow kill him but then he does it for days yeah so i don't know like I, I don't yeah i don't know anyway patricia arquette is out there nick cage is like hey don't give that guy any water the doctor says he might die and patricia arquette's like who's gonna keep him from having water yeah. and gives him a cup of water he drinks it like he's dying and at some point the, the next night they respond to him because he's a cutter at that point mm-hmm. he's like wearing electrical wires and some weird suit yeah he's, he's cut his face up with a piece of glass and he's like screaming about how he wants to die and um he he says like i've been in a desert and nobody will give me any i've come out of the desert and nobody will give me any water mm-hmm. it's a weird back and forth but nicholas cage basically says well we'll get you to the hospital they'll kill you there and yeah. he's like perfect i'd love to go to the hospital how will they kill me and he's like uh pills uh they give you gas they can uh do an injection pills pills i want pills actually then he loads him up on pills puts him in the back of the car that's when sizemore shows up and he's like i'm gonna kick the shit out of this guy yeah i told him i was gonna fucking kill him if i saw him again yo why didn't sizemore's character just become a cop i'm sure it's easier than becoming an emt because uh, his whole thing is like, I want to beat the shit out of some homeless people. He, That's the only reason I'm an EMT. Specifically Noel. Yeah. Or Noel, sorry. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so after they pick up Noel, they get a call about a shooting. 
they go and it's um, Michael K. Williams. Michael Williams is one shot. He's like dying. There's this drug on the Red Death mm-hmm. uh, next to his body. Nick Cage notices it. Somebody runs by and grabs it, runs off with it. And that's the drug that's causing everybody to overdose. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they take Michael K. Williams into the the ambulance. Nick Cage tells Noel to hold his hand the whole way. Michael K. Williams dies on the way. Then when they get to the hospital, Noel just bolts out of the back of the ambulance. Like he realized, oh shit, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you see him the next night and he's just like bashing windows out of cars. It looks like fun. It does look like fun. Nick Cage agrees with him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, decides to ba- like Sizemore has this whole plan of I'm going to sneak around behind him, get down on all schoolyard bully. Yeah. And dude. <laughs> I want you to push him so that he trips over me and then we'll beat the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. And so Nick Cage is like, okay, we can do that. This sounds like it's not going to work, but okay. <laughs> then Nick Cage runs up to him and starts talking to him and Noel's like, Hey, why don't you just like start beating up these cars with a baseball bat? And Nick Cage is like, should I, I probably shouldn't. He's like, ah, do it. So he starts doing it. Sizemore gets mad at him for not pushing schoolyard bullying. Noel. Whoa, whoa, that's destruction of property. He's a libertarian. Then property over people. Noel sees him runs off. Nick Cage has some kind of weird journey through the underbelly of this building where he's seeing like Rose places. It's real weird. And then here comes Sizemore just beating Noel with a baseball bat to death. Yeah. Nick, then they get him in the ambulance, take him to the hospital. Um, he's going to be okay, whatever. And then it kind of like Nick Cage stays in the hospital for a little while, kills uh, Patricia Arquette's dad, mm-hmm. and then comes outside and Sizemore's just beating the ambulance headlights out. Yeah, he's pissed. But he talked about it, He's like, this old boy's a warrior and he won't die, referring to the ambulance. Yeah. He's like, and I beat the crap out of this thing. And then he's literally beating the crap out of it, <laughs> busting the headlights out. And you're like, Nick Cage is just wandering through this. It's almost surreal what's so, happening. Was that ambulance a manual transmission? Because they all keep cranking this thing inside of it, but it didn't seem like a gear shift. Well, it would have been a column shifter. Mm. Um, I don't know if it's... I'm sure they all keep doing that loud... <laughs> Well, it looks, it looks like it's like a three on the tree kind of thing, as, yeah. as the old folks say. But I don't know if it's a manual because Nick Cage is like driving and he's just shifting like five, six times in a row. While not going faster. And you're like, what is... And it's super crunchy. Yeah. And so it almost seems like they've got a column shifter and an automatic and they're just banging it between first, second and third or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they're not actually like... They're not... It's not a manual. It's making the noise that like a parking brake would make. Well, it sounds like they're just grinding gears in a manual. Mm. They're just like, if instead of just like it going into gear smoothly, it's real crunchy. And so they're just like forcing it into gear every time. Mm -hmm. But they're not, the vehicle's not reacting to shifting gears. It doesn't, and they're doing it really weird. It's not, it doesn't look like they're in a manual vehicle. They're just moving this column shifter and it making crunching noises. Well, this thing belongs to the city. Burn out the clutch. Who gives a shit? But it's not like revving up. It's not. You don't hear the engine load change. Mm-hmm. It's just them going and going the same speed when everything's blurry, like Fast and the Furious, and they just the nitrous button. Yeah. Oh, and Sizemore's character also has that hyper specific New York racism where he like <laughs> talks shit to a cabbie and calls him like a Singalese piece of shit. It's like you knew he was from Singal just from looking at him. I thought I thought he was called him a Sikh. 
He called him a swami. Swami. And then he said, swami. you Singalese piece of shit. Yeah, because he's like parked in the crosswalk. Yeah. And meanwhile, he just blows through a red light with no lights on. Yeah. Why didn't that guy just become a cop? <laughs> <laughs> and then he like, he, that's like right before he goes and like, says we need to beat the, he, he was like wanting to find somebody to beat up because there were no calls. He's always talking about blood. He wants blood. He needs blood in the street. We like our coffee with blood. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, he's crazy. But instead of being like Nicolas Cage, who's like internalizing it, Sizemore is externalizing it and just treating people like crap and trying to hurt as many people as he can. But he's having the time of his life as opposed to Nicolas Cage, who's miserable. He's loving it. Yeah, everyone but Nicolas Cage seems to love the job. Well, no, uh, John Goodman doesn't seem to like the job. He's putting his time in until he can be captain. Yeah. And he wants to be in charge of his own crew. But... He Everyone. has the most professionalism out of the three. Like, and Ving Rhames doesn't really seem like he likes what he's doing. Ving Rhames likes being a character. Yeah. Because he doesn't really do he's, anything. He's got a too blessed to be stressed attitude. Yeah. yeah. And that's what he tells Nicholas Cage. He's like, you just need Jesus and you wouldn't feel this way. Yeah, you'll stop seeing the dead people once you start praying. Nicholas Cage does not stop seeing dead people at any point. No. But... Maybe presumably at the end when he... The final shot where he takes a nap on top of Patricia Arquette. <laughs> I imagine that he kills himself. You think? Yeah. Dang. The line at the end where Patricia Arquette says sometimes people's body has to catch up with their mind and their spirit so that they can die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That really that strikes me as like... When you said uh, that earlier, I thought you were mixing up the quote from the doctor where they were talking about, well, the brain and heart have to match the body no, as far as recovery. This is like a line that Patricia delivers right at the end. Okay. Where she's talking about her dad and she's like, hmm. he his his mind and spirit weren't ready to die yet. Yeah. And so the body was just struggling to keep up. And so once she rationalized that essentially her father died because he realized it was time for him to go. Mm-hmm. And so when she says that to Nick Cage, it's almost like the way that would relate to him was... I'm fighting to stay alive, but it's probably just time for me to be dead. Well, the way I read the ending is that he got more peace from performing a mercy killing than saving someone's life. Well, and I I think that too, like I can see that. um, But the flip side of it is also, we'll look at the relief in death. Yeah. And then her line, it's kind of like, well, maybe he just kills himself. I mean, I like to think he just gets another job. I like to think maybe he finally gets fired. No, he kills himself. Yeah. I just love that dynamic between him and his boss. He's like, fuck you. You said you would fire me. You promised. He's like, I'll fire you tomorrow. Yeah. And his boss just loves the shit out of him. Give me a hug. He's, you you said if I was late one more time, you would fire me. And he's like, yeah. He barks at him. Well, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> he's, well, it starts with like, you've been, for the past nine shifts, you've been late for five of them, and you've left early for four of them. And he's like, well, you told me you'd fire him. And he goes, woof, 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 woof. Nobody tells me who to fire. <laughs> <laughs> it's real weird. But it's, it's the fun. one instance where a union can fuck you. <laughs> it's like, no, we're not letting our guys go. <laughs> we don't have enough people to drive ambulances tonight. Yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a good movie. I really It's no it. face-off. No, you like, so far in the cage month, you've got face-off and one, face, this two. Face-off one, this two, yeah. Okay. For sure. Uh, how do you feel about it compared to other Scorsese films? I, I'm not the biggest Scorsese fan. It's fine. All kind of par for the course. 
Okay. I always that, found his non-mafia movies infinitely more interesting than the mafia movies. Obviously, those movies are great and they're iconic for a reason, but it's usually these stranger stories like this that I find more compelling from Scorsese. Like this, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver. I've always thought Scorsese movies were too long. Yeah. Like a Tarantino, like to, to some extent, his the movies are a little too long. Yeah. Sometimes they carry themselves all the way through it. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't mind a long movie as long as you make it worth it for me. You got to put your time in with the pacing, you know. Um, I'd say this one's a little more entertaining than most Scorsese yeah. movies. And I think it's because you have a rotating cast around Nicolas Cage. Yeah. And so you've got a series of chapters and small stories taking place mm-hmm. without any real grand plot. It's a vibe. Like you It's could, a dreadful vibe, but it's a vibe. Right. You could essentially, it's almost episodic. Yeah. You could watch any one of the days out of order, and the only thing really connecting them is Patricia Arquette. Yeah. It goes back to what I was saying earlier with Scorsese in that it's story over plot. Right. Because there's not really a plot. No, not really. Just like the degradation of one civil servant. And he's just, and it's just four days of his life. Three days of his life, really. Yeah. You, like, you don't, he's been burnt out before this, and he's probably going to be burnt out after this. Mm-hmm. But it's just like a little snapshot of these are three days in the life of a guy who hates his job. It's a bummer that the movie kind of reminded me of like the two actors that we've lost recently. Well, Michael K. Williams, it's been about two years now, but him and Tom Sizemore. Sizemore died recently. I don't know if you saw. I didn't. Yeah. It didn't make me that all that upset about it. I didn't think about them being dead. Yeah. Well, I did. <laughs> I'm just glad John Goodman's not dead. Yeah. Yeah. Do you watch Righteous Gemstones? I have, yeah. I never got into it. It's solid. Yeah. That's the most recent thing he's been in I, as that I know of. He plays a really good role in that. Yeah. John Goodman, it's hard for John Goodman to drop the ball. Is he doing kind of like a Jerry Falwell type megachurch guy, or is he more of a Olstein or a... Well, like his kids are like the tacky Olsteins, whereas he's more the traditional evangelical, yeah. like a Falwell yeah. type. He's like the grandfather of evangelicalism. Mm, okay. Like, or grandfather of, like, TV evangelist specifically. So he's that old school, like, I built this church, but he's just a thug. Yeah. It's all performative. It's really good. Yeah, and the uh, Danny McBride character, is he more the Sherry Falwell Jr. type? (sighs) Did you? No. Did you follow that cuck story at all with Falwell Jr.? No. Oh, God. Like, Danny McBride's character is eastbound and down, but religious. Okay. It's just it's like him being like, Daddy, why don't you let me do this? Why don't you let me do that? Mm. I got these good <laughs> ideas. And then Adam Devine is the youth group Mike. Youth crew. Youth crew Mike. Well, youth whatever. group, you're using it correct this time, actually. My bad. Um, youth group Mike. Of He only gets like delegated to the youths. Yeah. And there's like a gay Satanist that lives with him or yes. reformed Satanist. Yes. Yeah. Who's in love with him. Yeah. yeah. Um, he like gets this crew of super strong bodybuilders mm-hmm. who build their bodies for Jesus. Oh, yeah. Like a, that's a real thing. Those fucking phone lift ripping phone book ripping guys. I forget yeah. what they're called in real life. But Power they, force or something. They like capture him in a cage and take over because they realize he's yeah. not as strong as any of them. 
Well, isn't there, there's a Workaholics episode about those guys, and it turns out they're all gay. <laughs> Do you remember that? No. Oh. I forgot about that one. Yeah, and the Workaholics, they're led by Tim Heidecker, the, like, power lifters for Christ. <laughs> but, yeah, and then yeah. there's the sister, who I forget who plays her, but she's, like, the never-given-responsibility, yeah. classic fuck-up kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But, all in all... It's a it's a solid show. John Goodman delivers. Uh, a little background on this movie, Bringing Out the Dead, is I mentioned earlier that it's based on the novel by Joe Connolly, and for him, that novel was semi-autobiographical. It's about the eight to nine years where he was an EMT working his way through school to be a writer. But also, for Martin Scorsese, he said the script really drew him in because around the time in the 90s, you got to think around his age, that's when his parents are dying. And he said he spent about eight to nine years in ambulances, just going back and forth from the hospital with his parents as they're getting older and dying. So this film feels very personal, both just the writer and the director. I felt, I felt I could feel that personalness from how uh, Scorsese directed it. It definitely seems from an outsider perspective, it seems like a very authentic raw look at the downsides of being a paramedic. Like it's not, no part of this movie makes you want to go, I want to be a paramedic. Mm-hmm. Unless you're getting the wrong message and you want to be a sizemore. Yeah. Or just how, no matter how you lead your life, more than likely your death is going to be undignified. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's another quote from Nicolas Cage where it's like voiceover and he's talking about how he feels ashamed for seeing these people in their ultimate in- indignity or something like that. Right. Like when you see an overdose, it's like you're seeing like, the worst this person's been and they can't feel great about that spiritually you know if they are if there is something you know spiritual after this well and in nick cage's mind like they watch him do this mm-hmm. as they leave their body yeah they just hang around to see how bad it is it's pretty miserable yeah there's no way out of here that's dignified so face off is a lot of fun yeah <laughs> this is not yeah still great movies both of them good, so far good movies good movies nicholas cage sans necessity from tax evasion Mm -hmm. um really delivers you know so i'll give him props not for tax evasion but he did a string of like really shitty movies for several years to pay back the irs for that and he admitted to it in an interview recently but he's like yeah i did that but i never once phoned it in i gave those shitty movies my all every single time and i respect that for him and another thing I respect about him that we didn't mention in the first episode, I guess we should have done a brief like Nicolas Cage biography, I guess, but I always respected that he didn't use his birth name because he's a Coppola. He's yeah. Francis Ford's nephew. Yeah, which it is curious that he would that he gave up a name that would have guaranteed him essentially whatever fame he wanted. Yeah, he wanted to make it on his own. Similar to how uh, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son, but he doesn't write as Joe King, you know. I respect the anti-nepotism. I mean... In fact, I don't know that he's really worked with his uncle. I'm sure in some movie. But at the same time, like people still know. Yeah. You can change your name, but you're still, mm-hmm. you know, whoever. I think his first like appearance in like uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High in that bit part, he's credited as Nicholas Coppola. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. Well, any more thoughts on Bringing Out the Dead? No, I think that's it for me. All right. Of the four EMTs, who's your favorite? Mmm... I gotta go Ving Rhames, personally. I think I've gotta go Ving Rhames. I gotta go Ving Rhames. He's got the most character. He's having a good time, and not beating the shit out of people. He's just so fun. Yeah, he keeps the booze on hand. And he's Ving Rhames. Yeah. It's hard to not like him. He's completely different from the Ving Rhames and Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Well, and 
John Goodman is no fun. Well, he's he's a little fun. Yeah, because he's he, fun his, when he's talking about food. His most fun thing was like, oh my god, the Chinese place closes in ten minutes, and I need beef lo mein. And like he's like, we have to go now, and he's like making Nick Cage take him, and then all they're driving down the road. And he just goes, oh, my God. Yeah, he, like, screams. And, and, I was like, and Nick Cage's like, what do you want? He's like, I had beef lo mein last night. I got to have something else. I can't eat the same thing two nights in a row. Yeah. And, like, he's. He said half fried chicken after that. I was like, what's half fried? I think he just means half a fried chicken. Maybe. But then he, like, he goes and, like, takes a nap and almost drives them off the pier. Yeah. <laughs> when the call comes in. And Nick Cage is like, no, no, that's the water. Turn the other way. Yeah, because they're working like 16-hour shifts or something crazy. Yeah, yeah. And so... And Nicolas Cage has four of them in a row. He's fun, uh, but it's really just the food-related stuff. He doesn't have as much personality. Mm -hmm. He's just a guy who's working so that he can one day not be working as hard. After I've played Mass Effects, for some reason, the Rex character, the Krogan, always reminded me of John Goodman. And now when I see John Goodman, it reminds me of Rex. So the two are tied to me now. Okay. I don't think he voices Rex. He doesn't. I just, he just reminds me of John Goodman, his demeanor and build, I guess. Okay. I, I get it. Yeah. He seems like he'd be a Krogan. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything else to say to that. Me either. Well, this has been another episode of The Snob and the Scent Presents. I've been your host, Matt. And I've been your host, Michael. And we'll catch you next episode where we'll be doing uh, Lord of War. Try to 